Uh, what I'd like to do this morning is spend uh, eight or ten minutes with a few slides that are framing and background of the case. And then um, I'm going to ask Nancy Height to imperson, impersonate Sharon Oster with the flying chalk on the board. And I'm going to come around and talk to all of you about the case. And we'll work it through B-School style. Uh, when you look at the institutions uh, involved in the mortgage system, uh, don't assume that they were designed brilliantly or that they were thought out from beginning to end. The concept of kludge, is that in your vocabulary, Tim? Is that kludge? Is that a term? Hands up if kludge is familiar. I'm not going to get anywhere with that idea. Uh, kludge means things that are complex and badly designed. And there's a wonderful book by a guy named Gary Marcus called Kludge, which is about badly designed stuff uh, from uh, economic institutions to human memory to uh, the human spine, which is a highly error-prone structure and is as it is not because evolution said, what's the very best support column I can make for a biped bipedal creature, but what's the best I can do by evolving from a four-legged to a two-legged creature? And the spine shows all kinds of design imperfections that are attributable to the fact that it evolved in a horizontal plane and then was readapted in a vertical plane. And the institutions at play uh, in what Posner calls the depression of 08 and what most of us call the recession of 08, 09, though it is perhaps the mother of all recessions, it has not actually attained the depth of unemployment uh, and underutilization of uh, plant and equipment that would match up with the one in the 1930s. Of course, we could still get there. Uh, it is possible that it is now 1931 and another dip is out there. I don't think that, but there are those uh, including Will Getzman, who we saw a few days ago, who speculate that it might be so. Uh, this is a cast of characters for subprime lending. Uh, left to right, uh, the home buyer, the broker, the appraiser, the mortgage lender, the, uh, the investment banker, and the investors in the bonds created by the investment banks. And in the, the, uh, the row I'm touching are the principal incentives that make the whole system go. And the critical thing is that three and arguably four of the main steps in the process are fee-driven so that the alignment between the decision maker 
and the investor, or between the decision maker and the potential home buyer, uh, may be muted by the decision maker thinking fees. If I'm thinking, let's suppose, let's suppose I were a college admissions officer and I was paid by the live students delivered to the school. I might become very generous in my views. I might find creativity in unexpected places. I might imagine analytic firepower where none existed. And so in all these steps, the bias toward, yes, the bias toward completing a transaction uh, is a very powerful, powerful piece of the story. The risks are charted here. Uh, what we're going to do well, when we do the case, among other things, is to fill in the bottom row. What are the ways in which we would expect people in each of these roles to be tempted to get out of line? Uh, out of line ethically uh, and quite possibly out of line legally. As in the case, there is a broker, right, who gets way beyond both ethical and legal bounds. Home ownership in the United States, 1900 to 2000, uh, looks like this. And notice it's a truncated scale. The bottom of the scale is 40%. Uh, the big story is a huge normative emphasis on home ownership. Uh, the belief, uh, going back to Jefferson, really, that when people own property, they become uh, bought-in citizens, citizens who identify with the Commonwealth and who can be counted on to act in public-spirited ways. And there's a great run-up in home ownership between World War II uh, and the 1980s. And it is fueled by a very profitable mass development of suburban housing. It is financed by uh, uh, FHA and related uh, government entities. And it is rewarded by the Internal Revenue Service Tax Code, which gives a strong incentive for people to take out mortgages on a principal residence. Now, home ownership, I assume, have any, do any of you own a home? Oh, I should say that Jan Ilias, who wrote the case, is with us. Welcome, Jan. Hello. Do you own a house? No. Sometimes I envy that. <laughs> um, home ownership has all kinds of hazards. Right? I just learned that my slate roof, a 100-year-old slate roof, is at the end of its lifetime. And that's, that's comparable to buying a, it's about the same price as the highest end BMW to replace a slate roof. That's a hazard. Uh, suppose uh, that uh, you get laid off. Uh, your mortgage payments continue. Suppose that there is a catastrophic illness. 
the mortgage payments continue. The local property taxes continue. The unanticipated maintenance issues continue. And there is quite a lot to be said for relative caution about undertaking a debt amounting to several years' income in purchasing a house. Now, there's also a political dimension to this, which is that the old-fashioned local banking method of writing mortgages was extremely cautious and was first explicitly and then later implicitly racist and genderist. It was all about well-employed white men. And the, the, there is an ideological strand that is not Jeffersonian, but is more recent and has to do with equality of opportunity to own houses, which has pushed uh, policy toward a more permissive attitude. Uh, finally, there is, of course, the pro-market view, which became dominant in this country in the Ronald Reagan era, uh, which says, let people cut the deals they want to cut. Get the government out of the transaction. Deregulate. And in many cases, deregulation was a spectacular success. For example, the airline industry, uh, the trucking industry. Uh, but deregulation of finance is a slipperier undertaking. Uh, history of home values here. Uh, What's in, this is an index chart that has 1890 indexed to 100. And the gist of the argument in this chart, did I take this from the case or not? No. Uh, the, the gist of the argument in this chart is that by the time we're done with the current meltdown, uh, home values adjusted for inflation will be back about where they were in 1890. Um, this is a map of Philadelphia, and it's a historically interesting map. I couldn't find a comparable one for Cleveland, though I'm sure one exists. In uh, 1937, uh, mortgages were collapsing all over the country. And the Roosevelt administration pushed through Congress a piece of legislation called the Homeowners Loan Corporation, H-O-L-C, Homeowners Loan Corporation. And the Homeowners Loan Corporation was charged with finding out how to know in advance if a mortgage would likely fail. And the technique was not to look at credit scores, but to look at housing locations and to look at the condition of housing in a neighborhood and at the demographics of who lived there. And it was crudely racist and uh, uh, biased in many, many ways. Uh, it was explicitly racist about blacks. It was explicitly racist about Jews. It was explicitly racist about Italians, most of all Southern Italians. And it was a four-point scale the worst category, level D, was red, and the term redlining comes from this. 
And the idea was to tell the banking world not to lend money in those zones. Uh, yellow was a little better, uh, uh, then, then uh, blue, then green. And the idea was to put mortgage money into the safest, wealthiest neighborhoods with the most homogeneous populations. And from the point of view of managing the mortgage crisis, it was not a terrible policy. From the point of view of managing cities and communities, it was catastrophic. Because what it did was to accelerate the creation of slums in areas where mortgage money was unavailable for the sale or purchase of housing, or for that matter, for the large-scale repair of housing. Uh, they did it to uh, 200, they did the process to 200 American cities in a single year, including New Haven. Across Chapel Street is Class D. Um, this is the Case Shiller home prices story, and what's laid out here from the year 2000 uh, to uh, uh, 2007. And this is when Getzman talked about Case Schiller being a reassuring data series. If you look at it between here and here, if you look at uh, a, a five-year period or even a six-year period, it looks like a process of continued appreciation in home prices. And there was nothing in the data that would have given conventional econometric models would have triggered the suspicion that the end was nigh. Uh, the chart is also interesting because Cleveland is this line. And so that Cleveland is uh, a less extreme story in price appreciation than the, the cases everybody talks about, which uh, were uh, Miami and uh, Las Vegas and Los Angeles. Uh, this is the same story shown in year-on-year -year percentage change. And uh, it actually doesn't add much to our knowledge. I'm going to skip it. Uh, this is Cleveland uh, uh, price appreciation uh, from 2000 into 2007 compared with the country at large. And the gist is that Cleveland was uh, not, a hot, not a hot city. And it was, it is in that respect, hope I've got, I've, I've missed a chart here. There's a huge story about northeastern industrial cities. Uh, they, uh, by which I mean uh, virtually all the cities from St. Louis on the left side to Boston on the right side. Uh, they all uh, had their takeoff in the middle of the 19th century. They were all going almost vertical. Uh, in the years 1850 to 1900, 1910. Uh, by 1920, their growth rates 
slowed down almost to, almost to zero uh, and were uh, fluctuated wildly during the Depression years, recovered briefly in World War II, and then went sharply south from 1950 on. Uh, New Haven's case, the strength of the inner city economy forms an almost perfect arc with the starting point in 1840, the peak in 1950, and the bottom in about 1990. And there's actually been a little bit of recovery since. But Cleveland is a classic industrial city. It is the place where Standard Oil set up its first large refining plants. It was an advantage point in transportation because it was an intersection between very high quality east-west freight rail and Great Lakes shipping. And it, when rail became subordinated to trucking, uh, and when suburban development became dominant over the reuse of industrial urban neighborhoods, Cleveland suffered mightily. Uh, this income map of Cleveland, where median incomes uh, under 22,700 are shown in uh, the darkest uh, rust tone, uh, is where the, the case takes place, the green dot is approximately the location of Slavic Village. I wouldn't swear to it or argue with Jan if he said move it three or four degrees of the compass, north or east or south or west. But it's right about there. And it is on the edge of a large post-industrial working class uh, neighborhood or, or mega neighborhood in a declining industrial city. Oh, there's the great arc. And the concentration of subprime lending in Cleveland, shown in the darkest tones here, uh, includes the neighborhood we're talking about. And then there's Posner. On page 284, I hope all of you have memorized page 284, where he's apportioning blame. But although the financiers bear the primary responsibility for the depression, that's his name for the recession, I do not think they can be blamed, italics, uh, blamed for it, implying moral censure, any more than one can blame a lion for eating a zebra. Capitalism is Darwinism. Pretty dark interpretation. Uh, and Nancy, can we, how do we go? Here we go. Room controls. Where's mute? Mute on. Okay, let's get the screen to go away. Um, trouble with letting me learn your name. You get cold called. Um, 
There's a story in this where a local broker um, ends up being sentenced to prison. Do you remember that part of it or not? Okay, Mark. Can you give us a little recap on Mark? Uh, Mark Kellogg uh, submitted fraudulent data for about 70 homes and or somehow ended up, I'm not sure the process of flipping a house exactly, but he did it to about 70 homes and they all ended up uh, defaulting on the loans, the people that okay. he sold them to. So um, Mark's sin would be, would be what? Let's try somebody else. What's Mark, well, if Mark were a uh, relative of yours, and you had to have Thanksgiving dinner with him while he was on furlough from Ohio State Penitentiary. What topic would you want him to reflect on? Ethical topic. Want to take a shot at this? Um, perhaps, just kind of as, as get you mentioned. Um, as, as you just kind of mentioned with the topic of uh, kind of preying on zebras, um, perhaps something like that uh, and that kind of using a position to kind of benefit from people at a, at a much kind of like lower <laughs> position than you and kind of to their detriment and to your gain. Okay, so the buyers on your telling are zebras. Okay, um, I, that's, that's a plausible position. Um, if the buyers are zebras, are the zebras in any way blamable in this story? What do you think? Um, it's possible that they're blamable if they were given good information, but in this situation it seems like they were given completely wrongful information and led to believe that it was true. Okay. Like a plausible person would believe that. Okay. Uh, can you can we tell a story where the home buyer where it's plausible to blame the buyers? Yes. Okay. Where they should have known that they if they don't have the income to pay the, okay. pay the loan that they were that they were going to default and so therefore they should have not bought the home. And, thank you. And uh, are there instances where? People are encouraged to lie about their incomes? So I think there's a big problem with a lot of these jumbo subprime mortgages, they call them, where people were buying really big houses or second houses with subprime mortgages. And in that case, it is their fault because they were just being greedy, right? Okay. And trying to take, you know, trying to either falsify documents or go for the type of loans that uh, would allow them to get these second properties without really having enough to back it up. Okay, so uh, that's the sin of, sin of pride or gluttony. Not really gluttony, but it's bricks and mortar gluttony. Yes? Uh, well, there are also uh, ninja loans, which I think is a, a very appropriate acronym because of the sneakiness, but it was an acronym for uh, no income, no job, and no assets. Okay, ninja. No income, no job, no assets. And why would anyone, anyone encourage another human being to seek a ninja loan? Is it obvious? Yes. 
Well, if you're one of the three steps that profits off of the fee of making, of like having that loan go through, then it, you don't even, it doesn't really matter to you if it, or it doesn't matter to you if it defaults as much as it matters to the buyer or to the bank. Okay, so long as you can successfully pass it along to the next step, you collect the fee and you're home dry no matter what happens. Uh, okay, now let's stop and see what we got for a diagram here, Sharon. Unpack here. Unpack your diagram. Okay, so I guess this. I knew you'd be good at diagram. Our game of Pictionary. Um, so I'm trying to map out what exactly went wrong, and I would start with a home and um, the Slavic community, and then I would end maybe here with like the Bank of Scotland. And um, between, quote unquote, Joe's six pack, um, purchasing a home with um, $22,000 yearly income, which was the average I saw, that was misrepresented as being worth about 80,000 mm -hmm. um, from the broker who works with a, that I figured we could have everyone fill in the parts for me. Like how, how do we get from, the home to the um, international crisis. Okay, and so who's, who's the, do we have another mic or not? Yeah. Um, what's the next step in the chain to the, to the right of broker here? Uh, probably someone will give a rating for this mortgage so that the broker will be able to uh, package it with other mortgages and sell it to an investment banker. Okay, so there's a credit rating story, but there's also another story that's closer to ground level. Concerns the, the house itself. So we need a, an evaluation of the house, like what the house value is. Okay, and there's, thanks. And there's a saying in real estate, uh, appraise, as instructed. And uh, that and, and it's and it's not altogether false that whoever hires, think about the incentives, you're an appraiser. And uh, Tal here hires you to do an appraisal. And you're gonna get a fee of eleven hundred bucks for doing it. And Tal lets it be known that he thinks this house really ought to be worth something north of $200,000. And you go out in the field, do the comparables, and the number comes up at 140. What, Tim, what thought might cross your mind if you were, I understand in your case, it of course wouldn't, but uh, in, say, my case. Uh, it might cross your mind to trust all and just go with the $200,000 prediction. Okay. And the, and the second step in the reasoning is? Um, no one will ever know. No one will ever know. And next time Tal goes to the Yellow Pages for an appraisal? Come to you. He'll come to you, or he's more likely to. He's a damn sight less likely to if you undercut his deal. Um, I'll tell you a Yale story about appraisals. Uh, when I was in city government, we leased High Street and Wall Street to Yale for 99 years. We were broke. We needed money. And 
Um, the mayor sat down with Benno Schmidt. And Benno said, well, the university will handle the appraisal for you. And they did. Uh, the two streets together leased for $1 million for 99 years. It should have been a lot more than that. Um, and there were those in city government who thought I was the, the guy who got the number that low. I was actually pulling hard on making the, making the number at least one zero or a zero and a half higher. Uh, it allowed the law school to build that gorgeous underground library because the ground rights went with the streets. Um, and so appraise as instructed is, is a, uh, an important component in this story. Um, so we got the appraiser there. So who else is involved and what are their incentives? What are, what's the, Tom? Well, you, you've got the local bank that's actually doing the lending. Okay. Um, and uh, they probably uh, will get a fee for the loan that they take, and then if they can package and sell it off to someone else. Okay. Um, they don't end up with a loan on their books, so they could probably care less how it performs over the long run. Okay, so the, terrific. So the lender, the lender is um, also fee-driven and is, uh, is inclined to think that she or he can escape accountability uh, when the property defaults, <laughs> if it defaults. And why would that be? What, are the, what, what do we turn these loans into at the next stage? Let's let him talk. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think he's... Oh, yeah, you talked once. Earlier. Go ahead. Um, usually it's sold off to uh, a big investment bank or basically a financial okay. powerhouse where they pull the mortgages into these giant collateralized debt obligations. Or okay, CDOs, famous acronym. You want to add anything to this? Okay. Uh, so you've got the banks creating these huge bundles, and the bundles. How, what story could you could you tell to say that bundling these mortgages from all across the country might be a good thing from the economy's point of view? Is there anything you could say? It diversifies the risk for okay. Them it diversifies the risk. Say a little more. Um, well, presumably the people who are packaging them can uh, take out a bunch of, you know, do a lot of uh, financial analysis and determine that uh, the risk of the number of defaults um, would be lower than the benefit of the people actually paying their loans back. So the people who take out the uh, the package would have a favorable risk return. Okay, uh, and part. Were you about to say something? Um, I think it also increases the market of potential buyers because now rather than owning the mortgage and having to deal with an investor one-on-one, -on -one, uh, you have a, a pooling and servicing agreement that has a company as a servicer who handles all the collection of payments and distribution of money to different investors. Okay, so you've got, you've got an institutional mechanism that makes this work relatively smoothly. 
Um, and you're interested when you create these bundles in having the risks un relatively, have relatively low correlation with one another. You, what, what would be a bad bundle is one where we can know that some of the mortgages are defaulting and infer from that that lots of others are likely to default. And a bundle that was geographically concentrated on Slavic Village, for example, uh, would have that second characteristic and that would be a bad thing. So there is a story about risk management that uh, makes that work. Now, are the agencies like Moody's, these outfits that judge creditworthiness of companies and other, and, and other financial intermediaries, are they in this story anywhere? I don't know if they... Jan, does Moody's get into your case? I don't think I found it. Okay, so uh, everybody know what Moody's and, and its rivals do? Anybody want to help us with that? Far back, here it comes. I'm slow freight. Moody's and its rivals are essentially collect a fee from anyone who wants to spin off an asset or a debt obligation to actually rate the soundness of the, of the security for whatever it's supposed to be. They sign a rating like AAA or single. Okay. And if I'm Yale, is a trip, what was AAA, and I think we're now AA. Um, what's a AAA, what's the advantage of a AAA rating? Uh, if you have a higher rating, then that means you can get a lower cost of capital. So if you actually want to raise some money, okay. you can raise it for a lot less, okay. a, a lower interest. So it reduces the cost of capital, and it therefore has great value to you. Now, if you could bribe Moody's, you know, if you were completely amoral, and you could bribe Moody's to make something uh, AAA when it was really B, uh, it would be worth paying a lot. Right? The, the actual economic value of those ratings is huge. What keeps Moody's honest? Uh, the reputation, the fact that they have for years kind of made sure that the ratings that they're giving are actually safe investments. Okay. Well, and, and in general, people on the buy side are going to uh, want the rating agencies to tell the truth, and people on the sell side will be ambivalent about that. So there, right, there, there are cross pressures there. And there is uh, patent evidence of great inflation in the ratings that these firms produce. Uh, does that surprise you? Paul? Not really, no, because they get paid by the sell side, not by the buy side. Absolutely. So they are doing, they are in a sense appraising as instructed. 
And that's a pretty scary part of this whole thing. The, um, let's reach all the way back to Adam Smith for a minute. And Smith's story, not just of the invisible hand, but of the general, generally benign working of markets. In everything Smith says is embedded a basic norm of truth that I'm not selling you a false mirage of a loaf of bread. I'm selling you an actual loaf of bread. I'm not selling you uh, coffee or a substance that looks like coffee. I'm selling you coffee. And the basic accountability in bilateral trade, where you're buying something from me or I'm buying something from you, we keep each other honest, right? Where it's two parties and there's no information asymmetry, right? Where there are two parties with symmetrical information, the most foundational aspect of a market system is that buyer and seller are equipped to keep each other honest. And where there is a huge information asymmetry, we invent things like Moody's or appraisals of real estate as a substitute, a way of creating or simulating information symmetry. But if the third party agencies act like sellers to the side that pays them, the information asymmetry is actually made worse. Right? And the case, the, the strongest case for increased government regulation of uh, the finance industry generally, actually, is the difficulty of policing the police, of tracking the integrity of estimates put out there by people who are in the business of correcting information asymmetries. Um, uh, Jan, um, are there aspects of the case that you would urge us to pay greater attention to? story, and this may not be in the case per se, uh, but it's certainly part of the thing. Not only is there a nice little uh, boost to the cost of capital if you get rated AAA, but there are certain funds and certain buyers, like money market funds and other funds, that only can buy AAA bonds. Right. So once you cross that threshold, you have just absolutely increased the number of people uh, and, and possible purchasers of your funds. assured return, uh, these are not supposed to be risky investments, and therefore money market funds, all kinds of other funds are, are limited to AAA bonds. So getting to that AAA level was, was really important. Uh, to say something, even though I, I'm not a big fan uh, of their performance in this case, but in terms of Moody's and Fitch and everything, the collusion doesn't, there doesn't have to be explicit collusion in the sense that if I give you this bond to rate, I will never rate 
Bob began, unless you give me a triple A rating. What happened in this case is Moody and Fitch and others put out fairly explicit guidelines on what they consider to be triple A. So you're the bond packager at the iBank. You're bringing all together all these mortgages. And you say, I have to reach a kind of 15% threshold level where it's 15% over collateralized. Or I have to buy CDS, which are um, uh, the default swaps, in order to ensure this investment and get it over that AAA hump. You do exactly what you need to do to get that AAA rating. And what happened when the crisis hit was we had all of these people who are just over the AAA rating. And they, uh, I mean, with, with them just over, you don't have a spread, you don't have kind of a, a usual probability distribution. All of these guys who were creating these CDOs knew exactly the kind of where the finish line was and went just a step over that to make sure that they would get the AAA ratings. So uh, the fact that they were not very well understood that kind of the historic data went back three years and they felt very confident in, in doing stuff with three years of data, uh, I, I think that's kind of an interesting way because when you're looking for active collusion, you know, you expect guys in CD bars, you know, uh, trading kind of information and, and, and dollars in, in brown paper envelopes. And sometimes it's, it's, it's not that explicit. There are, are, are ways of gaming the system without having anyone do anything that even resembles something that's sketchy. Um, so <coughs> it may be that legitimate cheating, cheating in a good blue suit, is more dangerous than cheating in a, in a seedier setting with seedier or Or, or all your in a formula that's really untested by a heck of a lot of data may that, be also a bad idea. And, and, and I, to go on, I, I'm actually kind of surprised, uh, given that we're at an elite university with lots of people with connections to Wall Street in some way or another, that everyone thought the zebra was the people buying the houses. Uh, if you look at the data, and you have Mark Kellogg's kind of purchase list there, if you look at the data, you begin to notice not only is there a pattern in who the appraiser is, but there are patterns as to who the buyer is. We have this one buyer here, and I'm just looking at it, in a uh, four-year period, bought five houses, six houses, all with the same broker, all with the same appraiser. Uh, we go down, and, and there are others that seven or eight times. Just look at the names, and they repeat themselves. So I, I would put the question back here, who, who's the, uh, who's the uh, lion and who's the zebra in this case? Was it the Ibanks? I mean, they were relying on these folks in Cleveland to do a reasonable job in appraising, in, in, in putting out the uh, uh, thing. And in the end, that's what went into those formulas that I was talking about. The fact that, okay, you have houses that are appraised at this much, and historically, they default at, let's say, a 10% rate. But they didn't take into account the fact that you have people who are uh, just jiggering the system. I mean, going in a six-month period, buying a house at 25000 selling it at 85000 with no evidence of any remodeling. Uh, and it just goes on. You can go through. The Excel sheet is actually kind of 
fascinating if you want to kind of play kind of junior detective, if you want to see how these kind of patterns uh, in the data, you can look at the data and go, you know, this can't be right. This really can't be right in terms of who's selling and, and uh, how much they're selling the things for. And especially when you look at the story, Cleveland wasn't a hot market. And you can't come up with a story like you might for Miami or Las Vegas and say, well, you know, a lot of old people are going to move here and, and that's the reason land value is going up. But you can't come up with a story like that for Cleveland. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful town, don't get me wrong, but uh, there isn't... Uh, Worse yet, they've got the Indians and the Browns. Yes. <laughs> uh, it, it, and they have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But there's really, you know, it's hard to come up with a story. So why are we getting this kind of uh, occurrence and, and so on? So, you know, that's, okay. that's the point I made. So, so one thing that I saw was I felt like the zebra really represents... Um, potential profits and economic profit more than an individual in itself. So if you look from each of the actors' yeah. point of views, the, the zebra is really what they're, the profits that they're going after under the system that's set up. Uh, so rationally, each player is acting in their own best interests, but in the end, the big picture ends up where there, it, it hurts the system as a whole. Um, and so I, I think that like it's very easy to want to put blame on a specific party or a specific group, but it's just very difficult to do because everybody's working under the incentives that has been created for that party. And, and may I offer another potential zebra to consider, which is uh, the folks, let's say you're by one of these houses and, and, and the, the house next to you has been bought for 25,000, sold for 85,000 with no visible improvement. You bought your home for 30,000, you put another 40,000 into it, you have a legitimately $70,000 house. How are you gonna feel when that house next to you gets boarded up and goes into foreclosure because someone has been playing the appraisal game? So there's an externality here to consider too in the overall community. So um, who's got an idea about how to fix all this? Would it be drumming truth-telling into three-year-olds? Would it be, yes? I think there's a huge gap in government oversight, I mean, particularly with regard to the ratings. Uh, that, I mean, when, when Moody's is, although they, although they have the cross pressures that you talked about, but when Moody's is being paid by one side and not the other, and even if, even if we assume that they're all inflated and therefore must interpret them to be sort of suspect, without, without some third party that's completely disinterested, like the government, coming in and telling you how to rate it, you're not going well, to get truthful ratings and therefore the whole system falls apart from the top. Yep. Uh, that sounds right. Uh, my, one of my own inclinations would be to compel the initial lenders to hold a given percentage equity in each, each loan. Um, so that they can't utterly ignore uh, the, the probability of default. Um, on uh, Monday, I'm going to, uh, Monday is a wild card in the syllabus, and I had planned to use, use it to do the Maury's. Uh, the Maury's business plan. 
Uh, but it turns out that there are people who think it would be a terrible idea if the Morris business plan got the Yale Daily News. And while we're 110 really good friends, I think I'd be nuts to use that at this stage. We'll do that at the end of the semester when it won't be, when it will not cause bloodshed somewhere in the, the system. Um, and we'll do a, uh, I'd like to do two things with Monday. One is I'll post a case on Vioxx, the drug which uh, was a COX-2 inhibitor and did a lot of good for people like me with knee trouble, but it killed a few of them. And there were hard feelings and a vast avalanche of lawsuits, and we'll look at that. I'm also gonna post Federalist paper number 10. Could I, hands up if you've read Federalist 10? Okay, no American, nobody who's gonna do business in this country should fail to get the idea of the fundamental design of the American political system, which is spelled out in only a few thousand words there. See you on Monday. <laughs>